The wealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong, the editor of wealthmanagement.com. This is a podcast that simply gives me an excuse to talk to interesting folks moving the wealth management industry into new and interesting directions. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by James Hughes, who is the head of investment advisory lending at Live Oak Bank. James, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, David. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's great. I think the the impetus for this conversation was the recent news that Live Oak crossed the $1 billion mark in advisory lending, which was pretty exciting stuff because I seem to remember Live Oak Bank being one of the earliest firms to start lending to RIAs. Could you just give us a little bit of the background of Live Oak, how you guys started uh, it was early in in the in the industry, as I recall, and where you're at now. Yeah, thank you. Uh, appreciate that, David. So, LiveOak, I'll give you the the, the short version. Uh, started in 2007 with the aspirations to uh, lend to small businesses mm-hmm. and really to lend to veterinarians, and that was going to be our whole focus back in 2007. And we did that for about three years. And then our, our customers started to say, well, I have a friend who's a pharmacist. Can you help the pharmacist? And so we ended up moving into several other industries. And it wasn't until our CEO uh, went on uh, CNBC to speak about small businesses in America that he met a financial advisor. And that financial advisor said, hey, you're really missing the boat here. You should be lending to investment advisors. And so in 2013, we started lending to investment advisors and uh, since then, uh, LiveOak's grown tremendously. Um, so as a whole, we're, uh, we are a bank, FDIC insured, located in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, we lend nationwide uh, into 33 different industries, just like the investment advisor group, fairly aggressively. So we really understand the industry and we lend nationwide. We do also have a, a group of general lenders that will lend into any industry, but they're in their certain locations. So we have about 25 or so folks that sit in those seats. So yeah, we've grown a lot. We, we went public. Uh, uh, we're listed on NASDAQ. Um, we're about a $9 billion bank. Mm-hmm. And you know, the aspiration for the bank today is to be the nation's best small business bank. And that's where we're, we're, we're continuing uh, the charge. But my, my role is, is as you said, the, the head of the investment advisor uh, lending team here at iBook. And we have a, a sales team of, of five people. And we have a group of underwriters and closers. And then our servicing team. And all of that sort of sits under, on my, under my responsibility. We, we lent our first dollar to investment advisors back in 2013. And we're sitting at crossed $1.1 billion in lending uh, this year. So it, it's a, a lot of loans. And a, a, as a, I know I'm kind of going on here, but uh, no, uh, to, to, 
our, our bank has grown a lot in, in a lot of different ways and, and our team is just, you know, fits into that just the same. So we are the nation's largest SBA lender and we still hold that title. We, we, we lend more SBA dollars than any other bank in the country uh, in front of Wells Fargo. So it's, it, it is quite a, uh, a, a title to hold. But as we've grown, we've started to lend more conventional dollars as well. And that's really where we've seen growth, uh, not only at the, at the bank level, but inside the investment advisor community. And it's been really great to see that because the SBA has very black and white rules. And just as an example, um, if you're going to do an acquisition, you can use an SBA loan, but the seller has to, to exit the business after 12 months. And so for, as I'm sure we'll get into, you know, succession planning, as an example, if the seller just wants to uh, sell a portion of the business, you can't use an SBA loan. Um, So as we've moved more into conventional, uh, we've been able to do more around succession planning and different types of structures around acquisitions. And then just the last point I'll bring up is we, the, the SBA also caps at right around seven and a half million is sort of where you could lend using SBA dollars. Mm-hmm. And so as we've moved up market in our business, servicing the larger RIAs and, and, and registered rep folks inside the broker dealers, we've been able to do larger loans. And in the last 18 months, uh, we've put on probably our largest 10 credits. And in March, we closed our largest deal ever uh, at $60 million. So the bank and our team has really grown a lot. And, and I, uh, I know that was, uh, was long, so I apologize, David. No, that's great. <laughs> that, that's a great history. And, and I guess it kind of reverses the way that I thought that it worked, where you start, I mean, I know you've quickly outgrown the SBA guardrails, right? And, and got out of that environment, or maybe you're still in that environment, but, but I know that you quickly outstripped that uh, and moved into bigger deals. I thought that the earliest loans were for pure acquisition and the later loans were for succession planning. And I guess that's the truth, right? I mean, the, the earliest loans were, it's interesting that you come from, that it was started originally for veterinarians and, and doctors, because there's really very little difference, right? These are asset light, non-tangible assets, it, businesses, really no collateral except for the cash flow of the business. And so that's a different, pardon my pun, but a different animal to loan to, right? There's different ways of valuating these businesses. So, but, but there are similarities between veterinarians and RIAs in an odd way, correct? Yeah. So, so, so um, the, the veterinarian space, the, the dental space, pharmacy, a lot of that is um, commercial real estate. So the, the bank as a whole does a ton of commercial real estate. We do a ton of construction for commercial real estate. Our, our team sits inside of a group called Professional Services. And so we lend to uh, property and casualty insurance firms, uh, CPAs, and also law firms. And so you think about the correlation between those groups is exactly what you just said. Asset light, you know, intangible assets. It's not no real physical asset or, or collateral that these, these businesses have. They're all cash flow based uh, lending. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I just want to touch on the one point you, you brought up is, you know, so, so we've done mainly SBA for seven plus years in the investment advisor space, you know, mainly like 95% plus each year was SBA. Last year was actually the first year that we lent more conventional dollars than SBA dollars in the investment advisor space. And 
that trend is actually continuing this year. So we're, we're more of a conventional lender in the investment advisor space than we are an SBA lender. And, but our portfolio has always been somewhere between, you know, 65 to 75% uh, succession and acquisition. Mm-hmm. And so the way I think about it is really the, the deal structures have evolved a lot. Um, at least the ones we've seen, you know, so early on it was, you know, it's an asset purchase. I'm buying out, you know, this, this person's business and they're going to retire within six to 12 months and they're going to a little transition period and then they're, and then they're done. And now as we've moved probably in, in, in just looking at some larger deals and more sophisticated customers, there's more mergers, there's more you know, acquisitions where they want the seller to stay on for a longer period of time. And what about succession lending for internal transitions? Is that something that's kind of faded a little bit or, you know, cause I, I get the sense, I mean, listen, your firm has in many ways grown with the industry, right? So uh, the way that the industry has changed, obviously you're responding to those needs and you're right. The deals are bigger. Uh, the deals are more corporate in a way, right? These are, these are, full-on corporations buying other corporations at this point. What has happened to the Gen 1 to Gen 2 to Gen 3 succession planning financing? Yeah, I, I appreciate um, that, that lead-in. I actually feel really good about where we are as a bank and our offering to the investment advisor space. You know, in my, so I, was, I, I came to Live Oak in 2013. I got on the investment advisor team in 2015. Since being on in 2015, this is really the point where I feel like we have the best product set for the industry. We're offering lines of credit, working capital, recruiting dollars, succession loans, acquisition loans, commercial real estate. Really, if there's anything that an advisor needs, we're providing financing for it. So feel really good about where we're at. Mm-hmm. And then, as you said, I mean, we've really grown with the industry where we've built products and either if, if they're not market, right. We're seeing other people out there providing, you know, uh, better terms or different terms. We're, we're changing all what we're offering. And then, um, you know, we're, we're looking to continue to, you know, improve the product, bring, bring a better product to, to the advisor community, um, you know, day in and day out. Uh, and, perfect example is internal succession deals, the way that was sort of the, the preps, the, the, the way that was built internally was initially, this is a little bit in the weeds here, but initially it was a five to seven year term for uh, a, a junior or, or G2 to purchase equity in the business. And we've moved mainly to a 10 year product for some of the smaller firms will use a seven year, but it's mainly a 10-year product for G2 to buy in now. And that has been tremendous for our, our business and also for the, the level of, of customers that we've gotten. Last year, we probably did more succession deals, like internal succession deals, than we did acquisitions. And I think it was um, you know, the, the market, right? I mean, it was, it was the impact that cap gains is going to have. It was, you know, the market was up, valuations were up. And so we saw a lot of, you know, G1s take some chips off the table and our product um, was definitely uh, more attractive um, than it ever has been. 
Can I ask why the terms have gone, right, these used to be structured as five-year deals. I, re I recall that, right? Take five years to slowly move in G2 uh, to, to the ownership position and you guys would fund that transition. Why has this extended to 10 years? Is this because the firms themselves have become larger? We're, we're talking more, uh, more, uh, more valuable firms, so a bigger loan, more time to, to pay that off? Or why is the term... Yeah, so so it, the the term of the loan is you know is determined by our credit policy, and you know initially it was five to seven because that's where our policy was, and what we were finding was that you know the valuations were were too rich in order to make the payments work on a five to seven year term. Right. So where valuations are today, really, you know, a 10-year product is, is, is needed. And that's why we've moved to the 10 years so that we could actually get these deals to cash flow, <laughs> right? It, so, so that the person doing the buying is able to, you know, to pay us back with, with the distributions they're getting from the business. One other point I'll just bring up about that sort of how we changed our policy a little bit is, you know, around the G2 doing the purchasing, we initially said that they needed to bring in some cash to the transaction. And obviously we, we like when our borrowers bring their own cash to the transaction because it means they have skin in the game and all the reasons that, you know, banks like that. But what we've realized over the years is that, you know, the people doing the buying, the G2s, are often younger, late twenties, early thirties, have a young family, might not have, you know, ten percent, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to buy five percent of the company, and so we have loosened our re requirements on the cash in component so that we can get more equity in the hands of, of G two. Interesting. Can you give me a sense of when you're examining these deals or people come to you with requests, uh, and let's stick with succession planning for a bit, the percentage that you turn down versus the percentage that you actually extend credit to? That's a good question. I'd say in the early days, the, the turn down rate was a lot higher. Okay. And um, yeah, these days I think it's it it's more of if if there's a transaction to be had, then um, we'll we'll likely be able to finance it. Okay. And I think a lot of the the conversations that either fall apart or fall out are from you know we get a phone call from G two and they're saying um, I'm going to buy ten percent of my company for a million dollars or five hundred thousand dollars or whatever the number is. And um, I'm looking to do this the next, you know, six months. And um, this is what we're thinking about for a purchase price. And then as, as we have that first conversation and as we follow up, the, the deal just never happens, right? So G1 either disagrees with the purchase price, the, the valuation, or they just can't come to terms. Um, and, and so it'll fall out. Mm -hmm. Because really, you know, when we look at these deals, um, you know, we're showing G1 and G2. So you want to buy or, or sell your business for, you know, a million dollars for, for 5%. Well, here, here's what G2 is going to get for a loan. It's a 10 year loan. It's at X percent. Here's the payment. And they look at it annually and say, Oh man, that's, that's the payment. And this is the distribution they're getting. And, and so it's either going to make sense or it's not. So we, we generally don't see a ton of declines like from credit score or, 
you know, things that normally banks would decline people for. I think we see less and less of these days that than I would say initially earlier on in, in our stint in the industry, we yeah. would see more of that. And I guess the reason that I ask that is from your perspective, you see into the internals of a lot of RIA firms. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, that if just as a kind of barometer of the health of the industry, uh, what you see when you open up the hood uh, and what might be a red flag for an advisory firm to say, oh, no, bad, bad credit risk. We're not going to touch it. And whether that's, you know, the, the makeup of the, the book of business, the age of the client, uh, you know, decumulation phase, uh, uh, whatever it might be, if there are the, the normal factors that affect an evaluation, if there are things in there that often bring you to say, this is not the firm that we want to lend to. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> there's a lot in there. Um, a lot. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, no, I, I, it's good. It's good. I, I'd say that it, people that had my job would probably be surprised on some of the personal financial statements of the advisors. I think it's kind of like, you know, the shoemakers, kids don't have shoes type of yeah. thing. You know, I think that would be surprising. But at the same time, you know, I think a lot of advisors realize how how liquid their business really can be in that they understand the M&A market within the investment advisor space. So like they're building an asset that they truly can sell and they recognize that and they're putting you know, like any small business owner, you know, I mean, everything goes into the business. And so as, as a small business bank, we realize that as far as, you know, when we look at the businesses or, or just industry as a whole uh, is in a really good position. I think that what we, what, you know, what we're, we're concerned about or what we think about is, is that, you know, the aging population of the advisor and getting the assets into, into G2's hand, the next generation, all that sort of stuff. But from a, an industry standpoint, I mean, we've lent a billion one in loans and, you know, that's over like 1300 different firms we've lent to and have had like very little, you know, tiny pickups in the portfolio. So it, it is, one of, if not the best performing portfolio at the bank. Yeah. And, you know, we, we sit across a bunch of different in- industries. So as an industry, I mean, we should feel really good about where we're at. And then you asked about the firm and like what, what would command a premium or, or what, what, what looks really strong within business. Um, I think, you know, liquidity at the business levels is nice to have, you know, that's, you know, as the businesses get more and more sophisticated, that's probably more of a thing, right. Than it is like the sole producer whose business account is really like a personal account and vice versa. (laughs) And then I'd say, you know, the, the margins in the business is, is really interesting because the, the smaller uh, firms, you know, sole advisor to, you know, two advisors and, and, you know, in that smaller range, the margins can be like 75%, right. Um, really profitable businesses as 
you, you grow from, you know, 50 million in assets to a billion in assets, typically you see the margins compress. And so you just have more overhead. It, it, it costs more to have a, a CIO and, and CCO and COO. And, you know, I mean, it's just your overhead becomes more. It's still mainly employees. I mean, it's, that, that's your biggest expense. Um, but margins we, we see creep below, you know, 40%, I'd, I'd say is, is common for it to be below that number. I think if, if you can maintain margin and grow your business is where we've seen some really incredible firms where you have a firm that has five, six billion in assets and still operates at a 50% margin. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible. To, to, to have that. The last thing I'll mention is, is just growth. Organic growth is, is, is king, you know, especially in times like, like these where, you know, the market isn't necessarily appreciating. So bringing on net new assets actually helps you maintain the, the revenue level you had the year. So Growth is and consistent year over year growth with a you know methodology behind organic growth and and proven success. Certainly, people will that will command a valuation that is is above uh, is a premium. Yeah, showing organic growth, particularly when the market gets wobbly like it is. Uh, but you're right. I mean, a forty percent, fifty percent margin for a small business, and even at a a billion, $5 billion in assets. These are small businesses. Those are, that's industry or, you know, across businesses, that's an impressive margin, right? So you understand why this industry is attracting a lot of outside capital, which I'm sure you've up against. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, no. So I, I just wanted to transition a little bit to what you see. You know, we know Live Oak Bank was early in the space. Uh, but now you're, you got some competition out there, right? We have private equity coming in. Advisors seem to have dozens of sources of capital if they want, uh, just because people have discovered this industry and discovered that it's a profitable one too. How do you think that that has changed the, the landscape at all? If, uh, you know, particularly with the, the private equity coming in and, and making these investments, has that driven up valuations to uh, a place that might give you a little pause or what do you think is the effect? Yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, our competition or, or having competition, I think it's good. You know, I mean, me personally, I think it's good to have competition. I think it, it strengthens your, you know, you got to sharpen your pencils. You got to be really good at what you do, you know, have a good value proposition and, you know, sell the heck out of it and, and just, you know, always be be out there and hit the ground, you know, running. So um, I, I don't mind competition in the space. I think it's good for the customer. It's good for the advisors to have competition. And then as it relates to, to private equity, yeah, I mean, I think that they have, have driven up valuations and not to, you know, say anything. I'm not saying anything bad about private equity. It just, it, it is... And it's not just them, you know, the, whatever the them is, um, it, it's really just been demand. I, I would, wouldn't necessarily push, you know, blame on anybody, but it's just been the, the sheer level of demand that's really um, pushed up the, the price. And, you know, I mean, it, it is the, the biggest thing I, I think that has impacted us, you know, Live Oak Bank in our day to day is just the misconception about valuation yeah and how you have a 
uh, an owner that owns a hundred million dollar uh, firm that sits inside of a broker dealer and they want to get paid, you know, four times revenue or 10 times EBITDA and the business hasn't grown at all. And all their you know customers are 80 years old. And so, so really sort of dialing into the valuation and how these firms are getting a really high premium, what they look like. Um, I think that's where the next level of education is going to be helpful because there are some really big numbers being thrown around. Yeah. I mean, I've heard, you know, 15 to 18 times EBITDA. Right. Uh, but the the firm that, you know, we're talking about probably had 5 billion in assets and is growing, you know, year over year at 25%. So, you know, I mean, it's just a completely, like you need to look at each individual firm. You can't just take these multiples and apply it to your business because it's just not the same business. Right. And, you know, I encourage people to speak with, you know, professional valuation firms and talk to them about where they see your value. And then, I mean, if you're a seller, you know, certainly going through a professional M&A broker is, is if you're looking to, to, to get top dollar, I mean, that's certainly, you know, the, the route to go. I think, you know, everyone's asking, is, is it sustainable? I mean, is the, is the, are the valuations too high? I think, I think, uh, you know, time will tell. It feels uh, like a, it feels a little bubbly, doesn't it? I mean, uh, like everything else, right? It's, uh, uh, and, and maybe the, this will be answered in the next couple months. We'll see what happens with the economy, but it, it feels a little rich. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it feels a little rich. And then at like, at the same time, it's just that, that same thing where it's, you know, it, it's demand versus supply, right? I mean, supply is, is limited. And as long as demand is there, then the valuations will keep increasing, right? Because if you're, if you have 20 bidders for every deal, you know, that's what's driving it up. If all of a sudden you have two bidders for every deal, then you would see it pull back. But I, I th- in my mind, like that's the biggest thing is, is that if, if you just have less buyers, that would be th- the most immediate impact. As long as you have a bunch of buyers competing and really wanting deals, then, you know, they're always going to be sort of just one upping each other and, and, and maintaining a certain level of valuation. Yeah. Do you see this changing? I'm sure you have some projections on your books, depending on where markets are, maybe more importantly, depending on where interest rates, the impact that that's going to have on the, the M&A in the industry. I think the conventional wisdom out there is that it's it's going to tank it, right? Uh, that, that we've we reached the peak and interest rates are going to go up, and and that's just going to take the air out of this entire frenzy of acquisitions that we've been seeing. Is that your take too, or where do you read the the tea leaves of the future? Yeah, uh, it's always difficult to read the tea leaves. <laughs> you know, I'd love to listen to this podcast in, in five years and see how wrong I was. <laughs> but you know, I think that. A little bit of a slowdown probably makes sense, just given you know the rising rate environment, and then you know market volatility causing some people to pause. At the same time, rates are still very low. 
you know, I mean, you know, if, if, if prime's at four, seven, five, you know, I mean, you're, you're still, you know, lending at a, you know, sub 10%, well, you know, well below 10%. So, so rates are still good. I mean, historically, for, yes. right. yeah, historically. And, and then, you know, what happens when there's market volatility is people that are of the retirement age probably are working harder than they've, than they've had to work in the last 10 years either during if they can get a good valuation or certainly after this market volatility you know subsides i i i think there's going to be a lot of sellers so it's almost like every environment that we're in you know there's there's buyers and sellers so i i, I sort of see it just being maintaining you, you know that that's sort of like how we've we felt this year is we're not overwhelmed with deals, but it's been sort of slow and steady. Mm-hmm. So that's my prediction. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and slow and steady with perhaps a, uh, people will say, well, obviously a wobbly market, volatile market, market falls a little bit. Uh, that obviously compresses the margins of these businesses, which charge on assets. You know, I think there's been numbers tossed around that even a, a uh, a minor correction in the market, a 5% dip or 10% dip has an exponential effect on the, the EBITDA of a RIA unless they make some internal changes, right? Cutting the costs, in other words. So the, the, the pace of M&A may maintain, but the valuations come down? I, 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 I think that right now, what, we've, what I'm seeing for deals that we're closing right now like um, valuations are, are staying constant, okay. um, but the deal flow has somewhat slowed. So I, if, you know, for right now, I think because there's still, you know, the, to be a buyer, you're still having to compete pretty aggressively to get, to get the deals. Like the, the supply seems still, you know, light for the amount of buyers. So was, I think valuations will stay the same and it'll just, you know, somewhat slow. Um, may I go back to a, a, a point you were making about this, the, the businesses as a whole and, and maybe impacts to these businesses. You know, obviously a market decline is going to pot- potentially impact revenue, right? If it, they're charging off of assets under management, what we saw in 2020 with, you know, the, the blip yep. in, in with COVID is that, you know, there isn't a direct correlation between the equity markets and in the, the performance of these firms. And we, we, we should hope not. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so therefore, you know, the revenue isn't, you know, immediately impacted to the same, you know, percentage. And they're also billing, you know, monthly or quarterly. And so their revenue sort of gets smoothed out there. They're not just, completely impacted by a, by a correction. Right. Um, and this, this is where that organic growth thing, as I mentioned earlier, really comes into play where if you are growing organically, then it's going to help you get through some of these times. And, and the, the way that we think about our portfolio is we're fairly conservative when we do underwriting, but the, the way that these firms have grown over the years with the market, with organic growth, I mean, they're well above our our underwriting requirements after they've been on the books for you know a year or two. The portfolio is is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, from a cash flow standpoint 
at the bank. And then, as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of the, the their expenses are, are variable. And so they have the ability to pull back if and when they need to. So really resilient businesses as well. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned the blip uh, in 2020. Being an SBA-approved lender, you guys were right on the front lines of the PPP loans from advisory firms. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, you, you you did a, a tremendous amount of business, or I don't know, business is the right word, but uh, a tremendous amount of emergency lending back in that day, correct? Yeah, it was it was wild times because um, you know, everything was shut down. You couldn't go into the office, um, and then we were making PPP loans, and um, a lot of banks weren't, or you know, the, talk about demand. There was a lot of demand for PPP loans, and so we set up, you know, and the entire lending team just went to do PPP loans so that we could try and the businesses that needed it most. And so myself and our team, we were making PPP loans to you know dry cleaners and and you know, uh, real estate agents and, and um, all, all sorts of different businesses, but. Really, we tried to focus on the industries that we we, we uh, were already lending to. So our team, you know, tried to lend to investment advisors, and we reached out to um, some of our different contacts and said, "If you know people that that need help, um, we would love to help them." And I mean, we were working crazy hours um, trying to get all these people PPP loans. and it was really rewarding because a lot of people really did need the capital. And at that time, I mean, it was very, you know, now looking back at it, I just said it was a blip, but in the moment, I mean, really, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of concern. No one knew what was in store and, um, it, it was a cool thing to be a part of. And there was a ton of great stories that came out of, um, I mean, we did thousands and thousands of loans here at the bank and, um, we, we certainly, uh, put a lot of effort into it. Yeah, and to investment advisors, right? I mean, uh, yeah. they've really impacted. And then there's you know, been a fair amount of hindsight criticism of RIAs taking PPP loans. But uh, as you say, at the time, no one knew where that was going to go, right? No one knew what the future was going to hold. No one knew it was going to be just a blip. Uh, there was a, a, a real fear that that could be a prolonged uh, downward slope. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I you know, the, the, the bank doesn't look negatively upon anyone that took a PPP, PPP loan. And I mean, me personally, you know, I, I don't look negatively upon anybody that did either because, you know, I was on the phone with these people and it, it really, I mean, there was genuine concern in, in all of their voices and, and it was, it was available to you as a, um, you know, the government was offering it. And so I, I don't see any, any reason that the people are, are looking down upon somebody that took it because, um, again, it was just something you, you didn't know what was going to happen. And so it really helped a lot of people. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And, uh, James this has been great. Uh, I, we're, we're bumping up against our time here, but, uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to, to speak to me. Uh, I always learn something, so that's fantastic. Uh, and congratulations on crossing the $1 billion mark, $1.1 billion mark. <laughs> and, uh, uh, thanks a lot for, for joining us. Well, thank you, David. I really appreciate you having me and hopefully we can do it again sometime. I hope so. I hope so. We'll see you soon. All right. Take care, Dave. And this has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. Thanks for listening.
This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.